morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would open with me now to Romans chapter 15, as we continue our study through this epistle, still considering together, working towards unity, part two. As Paul considers this subject in the 14th chapter and carries it over into the 15th chapter, and we pick up this morning in verse one. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Shall we pray together? Father, this morning, we thank you once again for the opportunity to open your word. Lord, thank you for bringing us through this last year. And Lord, we trust and have confidence that you will continue to lead us into this new year. Lord, speak to us this morning from your word. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. In his book entitled, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer wrote the following on the subject of unity within the church. He said, quote, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. In the same way, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Jesus, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from Jesus to strive for closer fellowship. In other words, as we are individually drawing near to and being united with Jesus, we become corporately united with one another. When the vertical relationship with God is where it needs to be, then it has an effect on our horizontal relationship with other people in the body of Christ. Within the scriptures, unity among God's people is a high priority. In Psalm 133, verse 1, it says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. During his earthly ministry, Jesus taught on the subject of unity. In John's Gospel, the 10th chapter, it says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Not only did Jesus teach on the subject of unity, but he also prayed for unity. In John chapter 17 and verse 11, it is recorded, Jesus said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name, those whom you have given to me, that they may be one as we are. 
Jesus' teaching on unity, his prayer for unity was a subject that the Apostle Paul emphasized throughout his letters written to the churches that he planted and ministered in. Paul exhorted the church of Corinth in a letter of correction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In writing to the church in Galatia, in chapter 3, Paul reminded the believers there that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And then in writing to the church in Philippi, Paul encouraged them in chapter one, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You get the idea that this was a concern and an issue in all of the churches that was addressed repeatedly, the need for unity among God's people. And here in Romans chapter 15, Paul continues to instruct the church on the importance of maintaining unity. Within this congregation, there were different levels of spiritual maturity. Some were new in their faith, while others had been believers for some length of time. There were different people with diverse backgrounds and various cultural upbringings that were completely dissimilar to one another. Consequently, they didn't always see things eye to eye. They weren't always in agreement. And therefore, the apostle presented principles and guidelines that if graciously applied, would allow the church to remain unified. We pick up where we left off last week, still considering this question, how does the church avoid dividing over doubtful things? Not sinful things, not essential doctrinal things, but rather matters of opinion preference, personal outlook. How do we avoid dividing over such things? And Paul adds to the principles he already stated in Romans chapter 14 by reminding us, first of all, that we need to bear with one another. Look at verse one. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. To those who were strong in the faith, and Paul includes himself in that, he said that we ought to bear with one another. He conveys the sense of necessity. It's a spiritual obligation. It's a moral responsibility that we have as believers to be selfless, to put other people before ourselves. That's what we ought to do as Christians. And what does it mean to bear? with the weak. It's a word that carries the idea of enduring patiently, giving room for growth and development with gracious consideration. It also means to help lighten a load. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
One person said it this way, bearing with someone is when a mature believer foregoes an action which he knows is right, but which a weaker Christian thinks to be wrong. And he does it for the sake of not offending the weaker Christian. He restricts his own freedom of action, denies himself something that is legitimately his because he cares for the growth of the other person who is burdened. If a brother or sister is weak in a particular area, we're not to become critical of them. Why don't they grow up? We're not to avoid them. Oh no, here she comes again. But instead, we're to bear with them, to pray for them, to encourage them. In Isaiah 35, it says this, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Bearing with one who is weak in the faith will help build up their faith. It leads to edification. And our example to follow is none other than Jesus. That is why in verse three, Paul says, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul said, even Jesus, the son of God, didn't live to please himself. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. If Think about this. If Jesus lived to please himself, then we would not have been saved. Jesus modeled for us a selfless life, even though he existed in the form of God. Paul writes about this to the Philippians in this amazing passage where he says, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus didn't hold on to his deity in the sense that it was something that this is mine and I don't care what anybody thinks. Instead, it says he emptied himself, which means he laid aside his divine privileges and rights, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He set the example for us when he bore our sins. And Paul quotes here from Psalm 69 when it says the reproach of others was placed on him. Jesus literally bore our sins upon himself when he died at the cross. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't think it's fair that I have to have a spiritual obligation to bear somebody else's burden. But remember, Jesus bore our sins. We needed more help than anyone else in this room. And Jesus took care of the problem that we had. He bore with us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter puts it this way in verse 24 when he says concerning Jesus, he personally, and I love that, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds we are healed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made the decision to bear our sin when he said, Father, not what I will, but let your will be done. This decision of Jesus was made, and it's also a decision that we have the opportunity to make, not in bearing people's sin, but in coming alongside of them over doubtful things, not dividing. If Jesus could bear our sins on the cross, the least that we can do is bear with one another over doubtful things. 
The example of Jesus is constantly held up before us in Scripture, not merely as a model, but as a motive. We seek to bear one another's burdens in following the example of Jesus. And secondly, we bear one another, bear with one another in order to obey the commands of Scripture. In verse 4, it says, For whatever things were written before, they were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. When Paul mentions the things that were written before, it's a reference to the Old Testament. He reminds us that the Old Testament scriptures are not simply a record of the past, but they have tremendous value and instruction and application in the present. The scriptures help us learn. They teach us to develop endurance and find comfort and hope. Although the Old Testament was not written directly to us, it contains invaluable lessons for us. Today, we encounter the same problems, same conflicts, trials, tribulations that they faced in the Bible. And by looking at the lessons that are found in God's word, it encourages us to run our spiritual race with endurance, just as those who ran their race in scripture before us. That's why it's so important, and you'll be exhorted here throughout the year to read your Bible. That is why we spend so much time here in the Bible at this fellowship. There is comfort that's found in the Word of God. There's endurance that is solidified by reading the Word of God. And there is hope that is imparted to us through understanding and reading the Scriptures. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21, it says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. What, what do I recall to my mind that provides me with hope, the word of God. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I recall to mind what I've read. The spirit of God helps me recall what I've read and I find hope in that. Sometimes you come across believers who seem to be consistently plagued with discouragement, often troubled by depression, and they seem somewhat hopeless. But then as you begin to speak with them, probe a little bit deeper, you may ask the question, do you spend time reading your Bible on a daily basis? Do you have a time set aside where it's just you and Jesus with your Bible open and in prayer and seeking the Lord? And not always, but sometimes the response is, I don't, I don't really read my Bible too much. I don't, I don't read it. They look at Instagram consistently. They scroll through Facebook continually. They watch the news repeatedly while the Bible remains unopened. That can present a very heavy mental burden. Folks, listen. As I open up the Word of God, which is living and active, it's powerful. I read of the faith of Abraham, of the perseverance of Joseph, of the meekness of Moses, of the victories of Joshua, of the strength and failure of Samson, the calling 
of Samuel, the courage of David, the wisdom of Solomon, the determination of Daniel, the struggles of Jeremiah, the bravery of Esther, the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the resolve of young King Josiah, and on and on and on it goes. I am inspired, I am motivated, I am empowered, I'm encouraged through the word of God. To stay unified as a church, we need to make the choice to bear with one another. And we accomplish that by following the example of Jesus who bore our sins and by obeying the commands found in scripture and finally by relying on God's power. If you look at verse five, it says, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses five and six, Paul expresses his earnest desire for the church that, there would, that they would have a unity of mind and mouth. He says the God of patience, it's the word long suffering and comfort. The God that we serve is a God that is long suffering. I wanna ask you this morning, how many are, of you today are thankful that the God we serve is long-suffering towards us. Anybody? Okay, yeah, amen. <laughs> He's so patient with us, isn't he? He's the God of all patience and comfort. And if he is the God of long-suffering, can he not provide us with the long-suffering that we need to be able to bear with one another over doubtful things? He certainly can. He calls us to bear with one another, but he also enables us to bear with one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. As the God of patience and comfort empowers us, we can then bring glory to him with one mind and one mouth. But he's not only the God of patience, he is also the God of comfort. There are moments in our life when we need the comfort of God. There are other moments when we need a, a swift kick to get going in a direction. We don't need, you don't need to be comforted right now. You need to be stirred up to love and good works. You need to be uncomfortable, not comforted. But then there are moments when we need comfort. Jesus said to his disciples who were so troubled about his departure, he said, I'm going to send you a helper. He is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's gonna come alongside of you. He's gonna reassure you. He's gonna remind you of everything that I taught you. He's gonna empower, he's gonna be with you. He's gonna be in you. He's gonna make you a bold witness, the comforter. There are times in life when we need the comfort that only God himself is able to provide. A comfort that your best friend, although they might try, it just doesn't suffice. Or that family member wants to comfort you, but they, they just don't quite understand but God does. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulations that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There are things that the Lord has allowed us to go through this last year 
that were difficult, could have been painful. And yet, with that, he provides comfort. He brought us through. We're still here. We're still breathing. We're alive. We made it. And the comfort that we experience in those moments is the same comfort that God desires that we would show to others who need to be comforted. That we could say to someone else who is a similar circumstance that we were in, hey, listen, I know it seems bleak, but I want you to know something. God brought me through this last year. He was a comfort to me. And, and I want to tell you something. He's going to comfort you. He's the God of all comfort. If you need comfort today, look to Jesus. You're running around to this person. You're texting that person. You want somebody to come. Hey, run to him. He's the God of all comfort. He can do for you this morning what no one else can. And he desires to do that. The principle of maintaining unity begins with bearing with one another. But it also includes receiving one another. It's one thing to bear with one another, but it's something more to actually receive one another. Look at what it says in verse seven. Therefore, or in light of what I've said, therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. The word receive means to take to oneself, to grant one access to one's heart, to take into friendship. It's receiving one another with special concern. This was something that the Apostle Paul modeled within his own ministry. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see this example in verse 8 when he says to the church, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. To me, that is a picture of receiving other people. I'm not just instructing you, but I'm imparting to you my life. You may differ in opinion with someone else over doubtful things due to personal preference and background or upbringing, but we still have the responsibility not only to bear with one another, but to receive one another regardless of those things. Why? Because it says here, Jesus received us. The scribes and the Pharisees constantly criticized Jesus for receiving sinners. They said he receives sinners and he eats with them. I'm so thankful that Jesus receives sinners. That he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. He received them. Jesus receives us joyfully. The Bible says when one sinner repents, that all of heaven rejoices. Jesus also receives us graciously. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How gracious he is. Jesus also receives us without showing partiality. He isn't biased. He is not prejudiced to one group or another, no matter what you've done or how you've lived in the past, if you repent, if you turn to him, he's not going to show partiality to you. He is going to receive you. In light of how Jesus has received us, it's important that we look beyond doubtful differences that are not clearly 
mapped out in Scripture, and we receive one another. To illustrate this point a little bit further, Paul points again to our ultimate example, which is Christ. In verse 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, which is a reference to the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah said, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles shall have hope. You say, what do all those Old Testament passages linked together mean? Lest any person reading this epistle call into question Paul's understanding of God's desire for unity amongst both Jews and Gentiles alike, he cites four Old Testament passages to prove that God's purpose from the beginning was to reach both groups and that both of these groups were to be united in one body. Folks, if you are not a Jew this morning, you are a Gentile. Most of us are. But it was God's desire from the beginning that both Jews and Gentiles would be one body united in Christ. Paul, first of all, makes the point that Jesus came to minister to the Jews. In verse 8, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision or to the Jews for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Jesus came as a servant to the Jews in order to fulfill, listen carefully, the prophetic promises that were made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. There were promises that were specifically given prophetically. And Jesus came to fulfill those promises that were made. Thus, Jesus was born a Jew. He lived in Israel. When he began his public ministry, he went to the lost sheep, of the house of Israel. John tells us in John's gospel chapter one, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The Bible says when Jesus sent out his disciples in their public ministry, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus began by taking the message of the kingdom of God to the Jews, but he always had the intention of reaching the Gentiles as well. And that is why in verses 9 through 11, Paul quotes Old Testament passages in succession. He quotes from Psalms, he quotes from Deuteronomy, he quotes from Isaiah. And when you put all of these Old Testament scriptures together, here's what you discover. Paul is quoting from three categories of the Jewish Bible, which include the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. It makes up the entire Old Testament, in other words. And all of these passages collectively pulled from the Old Testament emphasize God's desire for two groups to be united. 
that Jesus came to save both Jew and Gentile. In the first quotation, praise is given to God among the Gentiles. In the second Old Testament quotation, the Gentiles praise God in harmony with the Jews. In the third Old Testament quotation, the Gentiles are praising God without any direct connection to Israel. This chain of Old Testament scriptures linked together is so impressive to me because it reveals that Paul had a tremendous command of the Old Testament pulling from every category in the Old Testament to validate his point, fully convinced, completely persuaded that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And therefore, as he writes with both Jews and Gentiles in mind, he says, hey, listen, to remain unified, you need to bear with one another. And by the way, you also need to receive one another because Jesus bore our sins and, and Jesus received us. And Jesus is the savior to both groups of people. So you need to understand that and remain unified in Christ. The Jews might say in response, oh, those Gentiles are so shallow. They have no biblical history. They're so limited in their theology. But Paul would say, wait a second. Guess who's singing in Psalm 18? The Gentiles. The Gentiles might respond, and say, oh, those Jews, they're so legalistic. They're so bound by tradition. Oh, Paul would interject and say, but wait a minute. Jesus came to minister to those who were Jews, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Perhaps our tendency today might be to say, oh, those people from that denominational church, they are so stoic and liturgical. Or we might say, that group at that other church, they are extra expressive in their gatherings. That's just a little too much for me. But the Lord reminds us, if those people that we point out love Jesus, they love his word, we do not need to divide over non-essential things. We should be unified in Christ. In light of this revelation, the Jews can't have a grudge against the Gentiles, the Gentiles against the Jews. Folks, I believe that heaven will present many revelations. The power of God, the glory of God, the wonder, the creativity of God, but something else that heaven will reveal, complete and total unity. When you get to heaven, no one's gonna say, what, what, what church did you go to? Were you, were you non-denom? Were you denominational, non-denominational? Oh, Calvary. Um, oh yeah, there it is. There it is, Calvary Chapel, San Juan. Oh yeah, there it is. There it is. Hey, here's your ticket. Um, we got a seat for you. It's in the nosebleeds. Pastor John's already up there. He's way in the back, way, way. You can't really see him from here, but just keep going and the angels will escort you. It's not going to be compartmentalized like that. It's going to be one group of people in love with Jesus, bowing down before the throne, singing his praises. Nobody wondering, you know, hey, what? where'd you go to church? 
Oh, okay, that's cool. I'm going to just move over the bed. I'm going to cast my crown over here, not over there. It's not going to be like that. It's completely unified. Oh, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Unified kingdom of God. Paul gives instruction, bear with one another, receive one another as Jesus has borne with us, received us. He validates his point through a living illustration demonstrated by the Son of God within the Word of God. And he sums up this section where we will conclude with a benediction. And in verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing verse. I want you to know that. You could do an entire message on this passage right here. But back in verse five, you remember that Paul said that our God is the God of patience and he's the God of comfort. And now he adds that our God is also a God of hope. And this God of patience and comfort and hope desires to fill us with all, and I love that word, all joy and peace that we would abound in hope. And how is all of that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if today that describes your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you filled with joy? And joy is independent of circumstances. So often it is something that is in spite of our circumstances. Are you filled with joy? How about peace? What about the power of the Holy Spirit and hope? All of those things are made available to us because of Jesus Christ. Does that describe your relationship with Jesus today? Joy, peace, hope, power. I want you to know something. In verse 13, there are two words that jumped out at me. And that, those are the words, in believing. In believing. All of these things are available to us, but the question is whether or not we believe that they are and we receive them by faith. I find that when I am not trusting in the Lord, if I'm not believing in what he has said, joy seems to be absent. Peace can't be found. Hope seems distant. Power I don't know anything about it. But when I am believing what Jesus has said, what the word of God has promised, and I'm not leaning on my own understanding, but, but I'm leaning on God, you know what I find? My joy is restored. The joy of my salvation. Oh, the peace that Jesus promised to leave me that, that guards my heart and mind. It's there. Hope, this expectation of, of coming good, this anticipation and this power of the Holy Spirit that enables me to live the Christian life, it's all there. I just, I need to take it 
at face value. That's what it says, I believe it. In believing, maybe today you're just leaning on your own understanding. You're trying to figure out how you're gonna solve the problem and you don't have the answers nor the tools to be able to solve it. What are you gonna do? Well, use a couple choices you have. You can carry all of your cares and be burdened by them or you can cast all of your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. You could try to handle it. You could try to bear it. You could try to do it. And, and you know, you'll, you'll find that I'm not joyful. And then you're going to get critical. And then you're going to get angry. And then you're, gonna, you're not going to be hopeful. And then you're going to be powerless. As, and, and instead, why not believe? Why not just take what it says and find joy and hope and peace and power through Jesus Christ? I would encourage all of us this year to trust Jesus more. I think of that hymn, all for grace to trust him more. May God enable us with that. Folks, what makes all of this possible, what allows us to be unified as a body, enables us to bear with one another and to receive one another in a group like this is all because of the cross. There is level ground at the cross. We are unified at the cross of Jesus. And this morning, we have the wonderful privilege as we start a new year to take communion, to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done and what allows us and enables us to truly be united. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have borne our sins on the tree at Calvary, personally carried them. And Lord, we are equally grateful that you've received us. You didn't reject us. Although you had every right to, you received us. And Lord, I pray now that as we prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning, that there would be a wonderful unifying, Lord, in, in this congregation. Lord, just remind us again. Cause us to remember what the cross really means today. In Jesus' name, amen.